Okay, so we're in Exodus 14, is where we're picking up tonight. Um, for context, again, for our visitors, uh, God's been building a new nation, and that's the theme of Exodus. Uh, he has carefully orchestrated a series of events, um, and we can see through all of this, especially with Exodus, we see an example of a life in, as a child of God. And we know it's an example because throughout the New Testament, all of our heroes use Exodus and these stories as they teach about Jesus. So they're looking at it that way, so we look at it that way too. We've seen a few things, which is from last chapter, um, that there's an upright cloud or fire of God in front of the Israelites, and you're supposed to walk upright, and you're supposed to walk with God in front of you. Uh, God asked them to consecrate and to set things and make them holy. Remember these themes from last week? Um, we're supposed to talk about God and remember the stories of God. That was another piece of that Passover theme. And of course, the major piece of the Passover theme is get the leaven out of your life. Have your kids search your home for it and get it out. And leaven has been and will be throughout the Bible an image for sin. So get the sin out of your life. Put God in front of you. Consecrate parts of your life. Um, eventually consecrate your whole life if you can. And talk about and remember what God's doing in your life. Um, like we were talking about things over dinner. So if you get stuck in your faith of walk, you pick one of those four things and you do it. And that's how you get unstuck in your faith. Um, and I love simple solutions to tough problems. If you don't feel like God's talking to you, pick one of those four things and do it. And it gives you something to do. And suddenly you'll find out that you are once again moving forward in your walk of faith, just like the Israelites are. Now we get phase two. Phase two is, and my coffee pretty much just got destroyed, didn't it? This is not for shadow. Shadow. I can. <laughs> one. That's one time. Shadow, lay down. All right. Um, we've also seen Egypt is an image for the world. Um, and in every instance where we see Egypt interacting with Israel, we see this example that the New Testament people use is how the world deals with new believers. So we've got a group of new believers, right? They're free from... Egypt, they're separated from the world a little bit, um, and this is exactly when Egypt chooses to attack. It's no use attacking a believer that's enslaved, and it's no use attacking a believer when they become strong in their faith. The best time to attack is when they're brand spanking new and they have no weapons, right? And that's the Israelites right now. So starting verse chapter 14, that gets us caught up. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they, that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Ziphon and you shall camp before it by the sea. So this is the next stop in their journey. We've already seen them stop. They went from Goshen to Succoth on day two. They went from Succoth to Pi-Hiroth on day three. Distance of travel for two million people, that's about right based on where we th the possible sites for these things are. And I'll talk about possible routes here in a second, but I want to get a little further in. First, let me talk about these three terms. Pi-Hiroth means where the sedge grows or sea grasses grow. So that gives us a clue as to where this might be. It's either on the coast going down the Sinai Peninsula. And remember, the Sinai Peninsula is like a big upside-down triangle. So it's either along that coast or it's somewhere in the middle where there's these kind of bitter lakes that sit in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula. 
or gorges. It could also mean gorges. That makes it even tougher. It's like one of the big biblical uh, mysteries is which route did the Israelites take. Migdal means watchtower. That's an interesting thing. And there's still a site that we know of as Migdal that's at the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula, so the bottom of the triangle. But why would you go all the way there? That's the opposite direction of Canaan, right? Um, But Egypt had watchtowers that look a lot like the Lord of the Rings. Remember when they're trying to talk between the horse nation and the white citadel nation, and they light these little watchtowers? That comes straight out of ancient history, and the Egyptians were the first nation to master that. So when we see Migdal, watchtower, it means a quick way to notify Egypt that there's invaders coming. So that's one of those things that would be an indication that's probably at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, because no matter which finger of the Red Sea you take, that would be a watchtower that could alert either path and let Egypt know that invaders were coming. Baal Zephon, whenever we see Baal through the rest of the Bible, that's a pagan god. The Baals were a series of gods, um, and we're just not using Hebrew when we see that word, right? Zephon means north or lord of the north. Uh, that god converts to Zeus and Jupiter with the Greeks and the Romans. So Baal Zephon would be the god of the north, um, which would be this kind of top god. The god of the north for the Egyptians was also the god of maritime trade, unlike Zeus and Jupiter. Um, So another indicator that we're by the sea when we see these spots. So Piharath is predicted to be by the sea unless you pick the other route, which we'll get to in a second. Um, the center of Baal worship, just so you know, was in an area, area called the Tiran Island, and that's T-I-R-A-N. It's visible from El Sheik, uh, and it's at the mouth of the Gulf of Aqaba, not the Suez Canal. So if you look there, there's actually a thing. So one of the two sites is possibly that they went all the way down the Sinai Peninsula and then all the way back up where the mountains block the route. It's a big, giant dead end. And at that point, there's this Baal Tiran, which was an island that sits right in the middle of the Gulf of Aqaba. On that island is a giant watchtower, or you would have done sacrifices to the Baals at that spot. Um, so it's a, a spot that would have been terrifying for the Israelites, and it would have still been part of Egypt at this point. The other spot that it could be is Nuweiba Beach, and there's people that argue that that's where they crossed. And if you look at any kind of map on the big triangle, there's these mountains that go all the way up and down one side and then that little path that comes up Nuweba Beach is this massive piece of sandy beach that could easily hold two million people right on the middle of the the Gulf of Aquaba um, I'll get back to that verse 3 for Pharaoh will say to, of the children of Israel they're bewildered by the land and the wilderness closed them in Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. They're bewildered, which means they're going the wrong way. Um, Okay, I'll say this too. I didn't get into the Hebrew very much because this is narrative. Most of it means exactly what you think it means. There's only a few of these situations where you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But they're bewildered. Pharaoh thinks the Israelites are going the wrong way which he would assume of a slave slave population that's never left Egypt. So look at these fools, they're heading the wrong direction. So the wilderness, if you look at Sinai, Sinai's mountainous, but it's filled with what they call wadis. And wadis are little rivulet cutouts of the mountain ranges that are surrounded on both sides by stone. 
they if you're in these wadis um that's how you would travel around the sinai peninsula um not it's not wilderness like trees in northern minnesota it's wilderness like mountain travel the wadis are also shaded because they're so deep it's the only way to travel through that territory so that's an argument that they went straight across the sinai peninsula and that's why people look at Nuweiba Beach, is because it's at the end of one of those wadis. The other route going all the way down the side beach would be this giant kind of highway that heads to the tip, but it dead ends in mountains. So you can kind of decide which way you think they went. So what this looks like to Pharaoh is a giant trap, that they're going the wrong way, they're confused, and they went right into the middle of a, a mountainous desert, and that they have no idea where they're going. And from Pharaoh's perspective, it looks like they're going into a wilderness and they have no idea what they're doing. The Egyptians might know that I am the Lord is kind of um, what God's saying here as a rationale for why he's having Moses do this. And I think that's interesting because all the way through the last few chapters, we've seen God actually has a heart for Egypt. And he is trying to introduce himself to these folks. They just keep rejecting him. Right? Except for the Egyptians that are now part of the Israel group as the mixed multitude that went with them. So they're going to see more curses and especially these soldiers are going to come after. I don't think this is a vindictive God that's saying this. Um, this is one more effort for God to show himself to Egypt that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5, now it was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled and, Pharaoh, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we might let Israel go from serving us. That's an odd question, don't you think, for those of us that have been here through the plagues? What do you mean? What, why have we done this? There's a clear answer to that question, right? But it's amazing how quick the world forgets when they have been cursed or when things have gone wrong in their life and they make some adjustments. It's amazing how quick they forget what God has done. And we're going to see throughout the Old Testament that's the case. Um, it's really easy for humans to put their will in front and forget back when they submitted their will to God. It's super easy for that to happen. So it starts with um, this descent into violence. What started with Pharaoh's noble goal has now turned into pure murder. I want to track that mental path. So if we're looking at somehow the descent of sinners at the same time we're looking at the birth of Israel, Look at this descent. In Exodus 1.1, Pharaoh wanted to build treasure cities. That's where this all started. He wanted to do something really cool, but the really cool thing he wanted to do was to accumulate more wealth to himself. Young people, <laughs> making money is not the only goal in life. And all us old people will tell you that. But Pharaoh hadn't figured that out. He was probably a young new Pharaoh. Exodus 1.16 Pharaoh sees a threat to his nice, shiny, sparkly goal of treasure cities. That is, there's this group of people called the Israelites that don't seem to be as excited about treasure cities as he is, right? He starts to kill their babies. Exodus 5.2 and 8.15, God tries to reason with Pharaoh, right? He sends Moses to do this. Pharaoh hardens his heart and he starts to reject this idea. In 8.15, Exodus 8.15, God gives up the, is the Egyptians to these plagues. Well, I need you to let go of the Israelites because you're going to do this thing and, and God's going to take his people out of that situation. Exodus 11.10, God gives up Pharaoh to the hardened heart that Pharaoh is already doing on his own. All right, I'm going to let you go. At that point, Pharaoh starts calling good evil and he starts calling evil good. Like everything that happens, he's upset 
at the Israelites for it. Exodus 14.3, now we have completely see himself giving himself over to lies. He's trying to kill and chase the same people that he was trying to hold on to just a couple chapters ago. So why have we let go our servant base? Let's get our chariots and go off and kill them or reclaim them. Um, and that fury and hate just builds. There's no reason to what Pharaoh's doing anymore. It is not reasonable to chase down the people that just killed off all your firstborn kids. And if he's associated God with the Israelites, this is a horribly unreasonable behavior. So what starts with a nice golden treasure city kind of goal flips into evil really quick. And I see that all the time with good people, especially in academia. I work with really good people that are trying to do good things for the world, but in order to do their good things, they have to force other people to do what they want them to do. This is the danger of kind of any kind of worldview that says, I want to make the world a better place and you have to do it my way to make that happen, right? This is the danger of Tolkien, right? When he had the ring of power and people would be tempted with it. And if you read the books, they missed this scene in the movie. Samwise is tempted to take the ring and in the movie they just have him say, I can carry your load in slow motion. <laughs> but that's not the, the book has a whole thing where Sam imagines that his gardening skills could really be put to use if the whole world became gardeners. What a noble, shiny goal. But in order for that to happen, Samwise would have to force everyone in the world to garden. And for me, that's torture. Now he's got to make me a slave for his vision to come true. Pharaoh's treasure cities are a noble goal. They're a great vision. But if you've got to force the Israelites to make more bricks with less straw to make your treasure cities happen, this turns into evil really, really quick. I joke with the intro to ed students now because I tell them, like, my goal is to not have a safe space because I know they hear that in a lot of classes, starting with the wellness, right? We want safe spaces. And I'm like, I don't want a safe space. I want an adventurous space. Adventure is the opposite of safety. Sometimes in our life, we don't need safety. We need risk. We need courage. We need boldness. We need to be have a backbone and do something, right? And But if you want safe spaces, who could possibly be against that wonderful idea of safe spaces? Isn't it a shiny, happy, treasure city kind of goal? But to make that happen, you have to silence anyone that disagrees with that worldview. You have to exert power to make safe spaces, right? Especially when you want everybody to have a safe space because then there's no room for disagreement. So it's like that same kind of thing. And I think that's where Pharaoh's at right now. Safe spaces, I also think, I'm just picking on them now. Now I'm on a rant, right? Christians should be a lot less concerned with, about making people feel safe and they should be a lot more concerned with saving their souls. Mm. And that requires a change of heart. So if I make you feel happy and safe in your sin, I'm actually doing you a great disservice. So we've never made an attempt to avoid conviction when we go through the Bible. Like if the Bible's stepping on your toes, move your toes. Mm. The solution isn't to make a lighter weight Bible, right? And that's a danger in the church that that happens. Believers think that once we're free from sin, Satan just forgets about us. That's a huge lie. Satan won't forget about us when we do this. He never does that. If we're not going to serve the world's goals to make their shiny, happy treasure cities, we are a threat to that worldview. And we're in every workplace we go into. If our primary God is not that job, then we're kind of a threat to people that are over-controlling bosses that want us to bow to their every whim and need. 
Why don't you want to work on Sundays? Why can't you do evenings and weekends? Because I have a family I want to raise. That's a threat in some situations, and that can be a problem. So if we're going to say there's victory in Jesus, the word victory implies that there was a battle. And what we're seeing in this chapter is this great epic battle between Egypt, the world, and the children of Israel, believers. And the enemy does not want to let Israel go freely, and they don't even know why, and there's not even a rationale behind it. So that's my point there. Even in battle, my other thought on this is, remember God sent them in this wrong direction. Like, they're actually following God's will right now, but God's will is apparently, from a human perspective, sending them into a massive trap. Cloaked in by rock on either side, they're headed towards an ocean where they're going to be at a beach, right? So this is a big trap. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated in front of you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you in seven ways. Deuteronomy 28.7. Sometimes God sends you down a path that looks foolish because he wants to show you that he can defeat your enemy. And I think that's really awesome. Alyssa, for a teacher right now, there is another news story about another teacher that's getting in trouble over transgender stuff. It looks like a trap. You know, you're, well, you know what? I'm just going to call you what you are. And I really don't care what the district policy is. That's a fight. That's a massive battle. I hope you never get into it. I hope you get through 30 years like I did, and it's just never an issue. But sometimes Christians, when the world keeps pushing on Christians, sometimes Christians push not in a battle way because the battle is the Lord's, but sometimes we just say, no, we're not going to be party to that. And that's a tough decision to make, but it's a battle. And it looks like, well, now I'm going to lose my job. So what? Is your job the only thing worth living for? Or is God worth living for? And I think we're at a period in our history where we're going to see a lot more of that before we see less. Verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. He took his people with him. Chariots. We don't get intimidated by chariots anymore, right? We don't sit and think, oh, chariots. We should read this like he gathered his nuclear weapons. To the ancient world, the chariot took tons of money, tons of effort, extremely advanced metalworking, and it was a lawnmower for human beings. You just stick some blades on the wheels and you go right through human beings and you chop them up into little human bits. That's the stuff that, that, I, that makes me not a pastor, right? <laughs> um, but they're meant to mow through people literally. That's what chariots did. So when he gets 600 of these and you think 600 chariots against 2 million Israelites, woo, yeah, woo. They line these things up and if you're not in a wadi, So that thing that looks like a trap is actually an amazing protection tool for the Israelites because you can't line up those chariots in a wadi. You have to wait till they get to a beach. They have to be in a big, open, wide, flat area for those chariots to have full effect. So the Israelites are going to catch up to the, or the Egyptians are going to catch up to the Israelites, but they're not going to attack until they get to a good spot where they can use those chariots. But chariots were the height of technology in warfare at this time. They are like a machine gun versus bows and arrows right? So the Israelites have a few like shepherd sticks and things like that. They're not going to stand up to uh, horse-driven chariots. So likely, then you think, where are all these chariot people coming from? And here's another thing about the ancient world. The firstborn sons were often given to temple service. 
So all the firstborns essentially eradicated the priesthood in Egypt. They didn't have a religious system anymore. The memory, the human memory of their system would have been gone. Where do the secondborns go in ancient cultures? They usually go to the army. So the church gets the firstborn, the military gets the secondborn. In other words, the Egyptian military is still probably firmly intact at this point in history. So we're getting all of those people. So when Pharaoh gathers up his army, those are the people that are left in Egypt. And if you really want to get rid of the threat of Egypt, you not only have to take out their religious structure, you also have to take out their military. And God's baiting them at some level. It's what, I don't know if I like the image of God baiting a trap for Egypt, but this is totally, you know, he's going to give them some chances, but they're doing that. I like verse 8. It's an interesting verse. And the Lord hardened his heart against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. In the Hebrew, that's runyad. Boldness is not a great word for this one. It's more like rebellion. They went out from Egypt with this ready-to-fight attitude, right? They're more than conquerors. This is what the Lord says to you, Second Chronicles 20:15. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. The battle is not yours; it's God's. They went out with this attitude, like, "Yeah, we just beat Egypt, and we took all their stuff." And we're walking out laden down with jewels and malachites and all other kinds of things. They're willing to fight evil and mentally they're ready for the battle, they think, right? But we're going to see that they flip in like three verses, right? Most rebellion for early Christians is against the world. You ever met a brand new believer and they're just ready to take on the universe? It's awesome. It's this really precious period in a believer's life where you first get saved and you're so excited about Jesus, his love, that he's saved you, that you want to just go take on the world. But that is something Satan has seen millions of times throughout history. He knows exactly how to deal with early believer enthusiasm, and that is show the power of the world and show how alienated you're going to be. Show what a trap you're in. Show what a outside the normal weirdo you are when you're a Christian. Isolate, alienate, and shame. And quickly those new believers stop raising their hand in worship as much. And they get a little more shy. And they don't want to be totally out there and weird and wild. And maybe living with Egypt wasn't so bad anymore. Right? I'll pick that music back up. I miss my Motley Crue tapes and things like that. And you start letting that stuff come back into your life. So instead of getting leaven out, you start letting the world back in. You stop distinguishing yourself. So at this point, Israel's in that new believer stage. Go ahead, let's do this. So they walk out with boldness is more of a uh, this idea of they're ready to fight. They're willing to watch and do it. But watch and see what Satan does. He's going to give them a taste of freedom, and then he's going to snap on it. And it's going to work pretty well. If it wasn't for Moses and God wanting to tell a different story, uh, this could have gone very differently. So the Egyptians, verse 9, pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them by camping by the sea besides Piharoth before Baal Zephon. That could be down at the tip of the Sinai, or it could be at that beach, the Nuiba beach. And we don't know. Or it could be like one of the traditional routes is they're just kind of wandering in the middle, which I don't think was based on biblical scholarship at all. Um, Overtook is the Hebrew word nasag. It means to reach. They caught up to. They attained. I kind of read overtook like you just beat somebody. You overtook them. But it's more like they just caught up to them. So now they can see each other. By the sea means yam or is actually the word west. 
So I have no idea how they translated that as by the sea. So this is one of those things where I think people that want to critique the Bible go after it. It's just an odd translation, but west of um, is a strong indicator that we're at the Gulf of Aquaba and we're not necessarily off the, the other one of the little two fingers. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after him. Oh, behold, the world doesn't care that you just became a believer. It's still going to do its thing. So they were afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's good. That's a good reaction, right? Then they said to Moses, because we there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. So going to the Lord is one thing. When they turn to Moses, we see the tone and and timbre of what they went to the Lord with. And this isn't quite as good, right? So it's nice that they cry out to the Lord. It's the correct response when you see the armies of Egypt. It's actually a truthful response to be scared to death. You see those chariots, you should be terrified. That's a reasonable thing for them to think. But Matthew 11:28 says, "Come unto me, all that are heavy labored, all that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." There is a response where you go to the Lord and say, "All right, if it's my time to die, it's my time to die. Here we go." That's how the martyrs responded to that kind of assault that comes from the enemy. The no graves in Egypt line in verse 11. Why were there no graves in Egypt? That's total sarcasm. Almost 60% of all real estate in ancient Egypt was given over to tombs. All they did was tombs. It's like parks for, you know what I mean? It was something where, or residential in the United States. Like they would build tombs before they would build houses. This is Egypt. And if you doubt it, some of the, they still have pyramids there, right? But they would have tomb cities in Egypt because they believed in resurrection, right? So this was a massive thing. So it's, were there not enough graves in Egypt? And that's why he took us out here. It's complete sarcasm. There's a cynicism to what they're doing. And then they say, better for us to serve the Egyptians. And you think, wait, what? Really? You'd rather be enslaved? Do you remember how they cried out to the Lord in their service? But suddenly they forgot how bad that was. Humans are good at distorting their own history. We're really good at it. This is not the correct response. That taste of freedom suddenly looks to them like they're on their way to death. And crisis always feels like that. But God's led him to this place so he can show him his glory. If they do this on their own strength, if they just go up and conquer the Philistines, then they're going to claim that glory for themselves because we're pretty good at doing that as humans too. When we win a battle, we're, we're really good at taking credit. But if he can get us to a point where we really don't see a way out, then we can give God the glory. How bad can it get before we get to that point is the only question. I want to be the kind of guy where I don't get to that point before I turn to the Lord. In fact, I'd like to turn to the Lord when times are great so I never have to go through that kind of moment. I don't need to be trained in that kind of way. I'm just going to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Save me. This is an utter disaster if I take control. I want you to have control of what I'm doing. Satan, however, is more than willing to work with God in letting new believers have a taste of their freedom. Satan just takes it a little different direction. Let me give you an example, four examples of that. We get a taste, and I thought of, I thought of all my young, recently graduated, newly employed people. You're not. You're a couple years away. Some of you are a couple years in. 
you get a taste of income really early in your life and it's nice. You get a little money in your pocket and you're like, money, this is great. I don't have to go into debt. I don't have to ask my parents for money anymore. But give it a few years and start buying things with that money. And next thing you know, you're enslaved to those bills. I always, I remember when we got married and we got our first house and then I looked around and like none of my paycheck was left. And I'm like, how come I can't buy toys anymore? Right? Because I used to collect Star Wars things, but not anymore. You get enslaved to bills. And Satan loves that because now you're enslaved to that job and that source of income. And you're trapped. And Satan loves it when you're trapped. Here's another one. You get a little taste of responsibility. Suddenly you get promoted in those jobs and you're in charge of things. The next thing you know, you turn around and you're enslaved to that duty. You're working nights. You're working weekends. You have no time left for God. You've always got some lame excuse for why you can't serve God and take your time and set it aside for God. You get a taste of power. I got this as a principal of a high school. I got a little taste of authority and power. But then you're enslaved by oversight. If you have power, you have to be there to take care of it. You can't put that on other people. So (laughs) here's a better one. You get to be an adult and you get a little taste of romance. Satan loves that taste of romance because it doesn't always bear fruit in marriage. Sometimes it bears fruit in giving you and enslavement to immorality and shame and guilt and doing things that your future spouse would not want you doing with other people. And that little taste of romance can turn into something that totally destroys your life. Satan's perfectly okay for you to get a taste of these really good things because he thinks he can steer you off to where it's a trap. Flip all of those around to God's glory. I know I'm going off a little bit on this stuff. It was that kind of night. But I think that these... I don't think I'm too far off it because that's how this chapter would have been used with little Jewish kids for 2,000 years, 4,000 years. Is This is how you would teach your children how to live your life. If God gives you a little taste of money, the correct response is to give it all back to God. I'll tithe it, I'll honor it, and I'm going to use it to build God's kingdom in my life. That's what you do with money. That's the correct thing to do with money, and now it's not a trap. You lose your job, okay, Lord, I'll go through a season where I have to go back and move in with my parents. Great. I'll do what the Lord's going to do. Get a little taste of responsibility. You use it to serve the people under you. And you use it to minister to those people that are with you. If that's the same thing with power, if you get a little taste of power, get up in the morning and take that responsibility and power and turn it into prayer life where you pray for every single person under your service. And while I was a chair for three years, I prayed for every one of the students in my department every single day. Yes, you can do that in a very short amount of time. It's It's something you can do. And then you see those blessings happen, you give all the glory back to God. Because it's not you that made those things happen, it's God that made those things happen. Get a little taste of romance, get married. And get into a life that can be one of the biggest blessings in your life. Am I right, newlyweds? It's a great (laughs) blessing. But do it with no guilt. Do it without shame. Do it without things that you're going to feel bad about the rest of your life. Right? Keep yourself pure until you're in that marriage thing. And now you get the blessing God wants you to have from these good things in your life. Everything in life can be a trap or it can be something that frees you up in other kinds of ways. Traps are tests. And for the Israelites right now, this trap that they're in is a huge test. How are they going to handle it? And this response they just gave is not the right response. That's the horrible response. So look really careful at this next part because we're going to get timeless, ageless instructions for how to handle a crisis in our life. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. I tried to look up how many times this is in the Bible. 
and depending on your word, don't be afraid, it's too many. It's th- it's just everywhere. The next piece, stand still. See the salvation of the Lord and he will accomplish for you and what he and which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Okay, there's so much here. This is a pivotal verse in the Bible. This is a huge principle for the children of God for the rest of the Bible. It's even you could even call this a first mention. Here's the principle. When you're in a crisis or you got a battle in your life, let God fight your battles. And then how do you do that? If you feel trapped, you feel depressed, you feel like something's gone wrong in your life and your life will never be the same. And everything, I used to work with middle schoolers, right? So anything that happens to a middle schooler, they blow it up into this, my life is over. They go into this thing and you just laugh and with grace you love them. And eventually they realize their life is not over. Things go on, but we still do that as adults. The traps just get bigger and we get more and more excited about them. And we tend to internalize it as adults. The salvation world here, see the salvation of God. Here and in the more figurative sense of the word, here it's the literal sense of the word. Watch God save you from this trap. Just literally speaking, we're not talking like this huge kind of biblical theological concept. That use of the word salvation is actually the literal, just watch God save you. So when you get into crisis, just stop, stand still, and watch God do it. Don't be afraid, okay? This is not a reprimand, and it's not an accusation of faithfulness. Right? So they're uh, faithlessness. So do not be afraid here is something we see again and again. The most famous is with Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Right? Don't be afraid. Moses is just encouraging his people without knowing what's next. We know what's coming, right? One of the biggest moments in the Bible is about to happen. But Moses didn't know that. He's saying this to his people in total confidence because he knows what's going to happen next. And I think this is the coolest part about middle age is we've seen God work more than you have. Or as the Chinese used to say, I've eaten more rice than you, right? (laughs) As you get mature in your faith, you've just seen God win too many times and you stop doubting God. And then you coach the people with you, just like Moses is doing here. Just chill out. This is a cool moment in your life. God's going to do something amazing. Just watch, right? And I think it's cool Moses says that without knowing. He's in the trap too. He can see the chariots and being as a young man, knowing Egyptian geography because he was trained in the Pharaoh's palace, he knows exactly where they're at geographically. He knows this is a mess, but he knows God put them in the mess. All right, God, if you put me here, I want to see what happens. It's okay to be afraid of what people will do to you and what Egypt is about to do, if you proclaim that you serve God, it is okay to be afraid of what the world's going to do to you and to do that, right? You go up to a non-believing person and say, I love Jesus Christ, it is okay to be afraid of what they think of you. That's not the problem. Just don't stop doing it out of that fear, right? Look forward and see what's going to happen next. So step one, Moses said, Listen to the encouragement of God. Step two, don't be afraid. Give it over to God. Step three, stand still. I love this one. Never make decisions out of fear. And I say this, well, even today, I still say this to Steph sometimes. We'll be talking about something, and I'll say that's just fear talking. Mm -hmm. We don't decide things based on fear ever, right? 
And it's led to a happy life. We're not living in a mansion, but it's led to an extremely happy life. And I think that's good. Going back to Egypt is a totally unreasonable decision. Don't make your decisions out of fear. Because what's Egypt going to do to the Israelites if they go back? It's going to just be way worse than it used to be. And I love step four, see the salvation of God. Wait upon the Lord, read his word, which is, if you're here tonight, it's because you want to hear about the word of God. We're going to study it together. And listen for what's going to happen. Go to church when you're feeling down and just listen to what God's doing in people's lives. And if you go to a church where all they talk about is the twins game, stop listening to that, right? It doesn't matter if they hit a home run or got a touchdown. None of that stuff. Standing still is a consistent pattern. I want to take a time and show you this throughout the Bible. This is exactly consistently throughout the entire Bible what we do in a crisis. We stop making decisions because we're emotionally not in a place where we can do that. When we're not in a trap or when we're not in a crisis, consistently the Bible says just take the next step and let God worry about the third and fourth and fifth step. You just walk forward and do what God's put you on a path to do. You keep going like a force in nature because God's behind you and he's before you. Just like the cloud and the pillar was behind him or in front of them, but that cloud's going to move behind him in a few verses. Listen to this, Josh 3.8. You know I was going to mention Josh. Right when they're crossing into the, the Jordan, into the land, it says, And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the brink of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So God actually puts them in the Jordan River, like ankle deep, right? That's where you're going to stand still. You're going to go forward to where you don't see how to go forward anymore and just stop and let God do his thing. You want to see a miracle? Stop walking forward. Stop and watch. This is a good thing to do. When we watch TV, we sit down and we don't move. We watch TV. If you want to see God work in your life, stop pushing your life forward so much. Do nothing and trust in God. 1 Samuel 12, 7. Now therefore stand still that I might reason with you before the Lord of all righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. Things are going horribly. You think your life is worse than Job's? Look carefully at what he told Job to do. Job 37, 14. Hearken unto this. I must have grabbed King James because hearken is. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Same instructions, right? Just stop and remember what God's already done in your life. Do you remember the plagues that just happened? Do you think God can't get you out of this when he got you out of that? My goodness, he saved your soul. He brought you out of a world that's on their way to damnation and you suddenly became a believer. Do you think there's anything that's going to happen in your life there's a greater miracle than that, a total 180 of the heart? Remember that first day you became saved and how wonderful that felt? Stop, stand still, consider the wondrous works of God. Second Chronicles 20:17. You don't need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Facing unreasonable odds, that's the instruction. And David, who faced these odds many times, Psalm 4:4, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. The word Selah is used throughout the Psalms and it just means be still, breathe, listen, know what God's doing. Of course, the best example of this is not in the Bible, it's in Star Wars. 
Obi-Wan's going after Darth Maul. Darth Maul is all rage, all angry. Remember this scene? He just had killed his master, Kaigon Jin. And what does Obi-Wan do? He stops. He takes a knee. You like this reference, don't you? And he just waits, right? The little force shield comes up, so he kind of has to wait. But instead of being angry and mad, he just sits and finds peace in his heart. What do believers do in the middle of a crisis? Breathe. Stop. You as a human being aren't in the position to make rational or good decisions. You're going to get killed just like Kaigon Jin if you go marching forward thinking you know what you're doing. You'll make huge lifetime mistakes that you'll regret. Just breathe and stop for a second. To go back to Egypt is death. To run into the mountains is death. To go running into the Red Sea at this point is death. The only option that makes any sense for the Israelites right now is to wait for God and don't do anything, right? Okay, I know I've made that huge point, but I just love the idea that we think we can build the kingdom, and new believers do this all the time. We think we can change the church and make it better if they'd only do what we want them to do and plant gardens, right? We charge in and we tell the church they're wrong. It's all for old people and you're not doing anything right. But we're just jumping into the same game the world plays, which is to put our will above other people's will. Instead of coming in and just learning and serving and being humble and saying, how can I help? What can I do? Where can I put the napkins? Right? Because Dickers is eating again and he's sloppy. Therefore, we remember God can build his kingdom. He fights our battles. He is right. And the more like his children we can be, the more we align with his will, his power, and his kingdom, and we get to watch it all happen. And it's the biggest honor in life. It's better than power, money, responsibility, or even romance. It's awesome. And you see the kingdom grow, it's something else. And then you go forward when God says to, verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? I read that as, why are you being a whiny little baby? This is God not making a safe place for Moses, which is why I brought that example up before. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. What do you mean go forward? The mountains? Back to Egypt? The sea? Like they're in a trap right now, right? They're by the sea. They're trapped in this kind of thing. Courage isn't about getting rid of fear. That's bravery. Charging forward without knowing what you're doing and not having fear is called bravery. But courage isn't that. Courage is going forward despite the fact that you're scared. And that's Egypt, or that's Israel right now. They're terrified, but they're going to go forward anyways. Why do you cry to me? That's not encouraging language. Uh, but Moses is desperate. Moses does the right thing. He goes to God. There's this kind of element here of praying and acting. And I think some of the commentators would kind of get into this a little bit. Charles Spurgeon, if you like him, he, he implies that there's a sin in praying too much. This is a tough concept. When you know what you're supposed to be doing and you just keep praying about it over and over again, at some point God might say to you, why do you cry to me? I've already told you what I want you to do. You, you are utterly convinced this is where God put you and the, what God wanted you to do. So do that. And that might mean years of your life doing that thing. Pastors run into this all the time. I talk to every pastor I know and I'm like, so have you ever been discouraged in the ministry? Yes. And the good pastors stick it out even though they're battled on every side. And it has to endure, right? So why do you cry to me? You know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, 
I don't know if that's I don't know if Spurgeon is not necessarily a biblical person. And again, I don't try to get too far into theology, but there is something to this when the Lord just says, "Why do you cry to me?" He's already given them instructions. Or it could be read as, "Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward," and that God's gently coaching and encouraging Moses to do his thing. I like that kind of image of God a little better. Like this is God just coaching a little bit. So you have to kind of decide what voice you hear when you do that. But why do you cry to me is one of the responses of God. We now have to put that on our list when we're praying. Like that could be one of the responses. Verse 16, but lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Okay, all right. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So God's telling what he's going to do and tells Moses what to do. Remember, this is not a magic rod. This is God doing something, and he's having Moses be a part of it. And I think this is kind of a neat image, too. God wants the people to see that Moses is talking to him. The only Because God could just part the Red Sea and say, look, there, that's the direction to go. But he wants Moses to have a physical motion so the Israelites know who's talking to God for them. Right? There's a chain of authority here that's going on. Um, it's a visual for the people of Israel to see Moses hold out his rod, too which is going to help them with their fear. So he's going to hold out his rod and this thing's going to happen. Verse 17, And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. At this point, God has to harden their hearts because no idiot in their right mind is going to chase after a visual miracle right in front of their face. Right? Who does this? Napoleon wouldn't do that. Alexander the Great, he wouldn't lead his chariots into this. You have to be an idiot to do this. Right? And Pharaoh at this point... The Bible's claiming he's not an idiot. God's actually intervening here a little bit because God wants to show a thing that's going to happen. So I will gain, I, indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So death of firstborn wasn't the final chapter. You could even say there's 11 plagues. This is the final introduction that Egypt's going to have. You lost all your priests. Now you're going to lose your whole army, right? Historically speaking, Egypt goes from the golden middle kingdom in archaeology to the next layer is all the wells in Egypt are filled with dead people. And we know that from archaeology too. And the next thing you see is about 150 years of Egypt just being off the historical record. They don't really exist. They have to rise again. And it's going to take them generations to, to recover from this. So most of the secular archaeologists agree that there was something that happened to Egypt at this period in history. The Bible tells us what happened from the Israeli perspective. The Israelis were the survivors, and if if this is true, there wouldn't have been Egyptians to write their history, which would explain why there isn't a history for Egypt at this period of time. God is still answering Pharaoh, remember, from Exodus 5-2. And Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Well, he's let Israel go, and now he's going to know the Lord. And the final consequence for Pharaoh, who's now leading his army, he's going to die in the Red Sea. And that's the conclusion. That's how you really get to know God in the end if you want to defy him for your whole life. You're going to die in your sin. So... The angel of God, verse 19, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went bef- went from before them and stood behind them. This is where the pillar and the... So remember, at nighttime, it's a cloud. At, at nighttime, it's fire, and daytime, it's a cloud. 
I don't know why that's so hard for me. It goes from being right in front of their face to covering their back. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of the Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all night. Remember, we're on a thin path. Either route, you're on a path that's not that wide. So however you figure they're going there. So that cloud would have made a blind spot, um, which is a miracle. So the Bible's claiming that the angel shifts positions, God directs and shifts where God's people need him, and he can lead the way, or he can cover our backs. And either way, God's going to protect his, his servants the way he wants to. So darkness to one, light to the other, awesome concept. This is true. I can't tell you how many times I see things happen, and I'm like, wow, praise the Lord, look at what just happened. And then I'll meet other people going, how do you see that that's the Lord? Like, I don't get that at all. And it's they're just not looking for it because they never stood still and they never watched for it. Um, There's no form to Pharaoh's plans. He's completely irrational. There's now no light in front of him. His sight is blind, and that blindness is exactly what the enemy loves. So he sees this cloud in front of him. It's without form. It's chaos. It's without reason. It doesn't make sense. And that's always been what the enemy wants us to see when we look at God, is that God doesn't make sense. Right? And the enemy does that all the time. When God brings darkness in this case, it's also preserving the lives of the Egyptians. I thought that was an interesting take on this. God blocking their view and making it so they can't attack is making it so God doesn't have to kill them. The Egyptians are getting one more chance. Actually, they're going to get two more chances. One more chance to turn around and just stop this nonsense. And that cloud delays them from their attack because no military leader in the history of the world ever charges into a blind spot. You don't do that. Even when you're an idiot, even when you're Pharaoh, even when you're blind with rage, if you can't see the enemy, you don't charge into a cloud when you can wait for daylight. I think that's super cool. Throughout history, there's been major pivotal world turning points. And this is the geek history teacher in me. I love these things. Weather happens to intervene at very key times in human history. It's happened before. Right? It's happened a lot of times. So the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC, nobody knows what I'm talking about, do you? The Persians have conquered the Middle East. They have a million-man army, tons of them. They hop in their ships to cross over. They have plenty of forces to completely overwhelm Greece, which is the seedling of the Western world. But they can't do it because the wind happens to uncommonly be blowing their boats the wrong direction. So they have to go by land and cross over where they have a very thin little wadi of territory that they have to attack. Thermopylae, or I'm sorry, Themistocles is the naval leader that was just sitting there with his pathetic little Greek navy going, well, that was nice because now they got to go face the Spartans. And we all know how that story ends, right? Okay. Here's another one. Kublai Khan wants to invade Japan, right? Our ally in World War II a thousand years later, right? But not only does he get blown back by what they record as a divine wind, totally uncommon, totally unnatural wind blows the Khans, the, the Mongol hordes back to their shores. It happens twice. Like they wait for the wind to die down, they get back in their boats, the wind blows them right back again. Japan survives history. The Spanish Armada, 
totally the dominant seafaring force in the world, but at this point the corruption in the Catholic Church in Spain, in Spain has made them completely inept in the kingdom. But you got these little English Protestants and art is thriving and Shakespeare is writing and you have this emergent England happening and the Spanish Armada is coming to take over. In 1588, an unnatural, supernatural wind messes the Spanish Armada up so bad that Drake and the English ships are able to take advantage of the confusion and beat the Spanish Armada. Changes the history of the world. Russia has been saved three times. Orthodox Christian Russia has been saved three times by uncommonly unnatural winds that literally froze with negative 40 degree temperatures. The Swedes were trying to invade, they froze to death. The French tried to invade under Napoleon, 600,000 soldiers, 150,000 soldiers came whimpering back to France in surviving. The rest died and froze to death, right? And of course, the Germans tried to invade Russia, not learning their lesson from the French, and Hitler, the greatest army on earth, is defeated by a cold winter, an uncommonly cold winter that stops them again. If Hitler had beat the Russians, the entirety bulk of his force would have been there to fight the Americans and the British, right? It, it just keeps happening. And of course, my favorite, because I was an American history teacher, General Washington has his little army ready to go. The might of the British army, this is like the Spanish Armada, this is like the Mongolian hordes, this is like the German army going into Russia. The British army at the time was massive, well-equipped, well-informed, well-trained, and lots of little red coats, right? <laughs> they go to attack at the Battle of Long Island on August 27, 1776. This isn't long after July 4th, right? This is the very beginning of the revolution a thick fog rolls in, in New York, and they can't see a thing. And like any military leader, you never attack if you can't see your enemy. It's just too risky. So the Pharaoh doesn't attack, and neither did the British army. And George Washington scampers away and hides in the hills for three years, right? And the revolution stays alive, changing the face of human nature. We see it again here. I know, a total off track, right? Um, Here's my point with this, and I think this is really cool, because for those of you that were here in week one, do you remember Genesis 1, what the problem was? The problem was formlessness. The problem was chaos. The problem was this thing that didn't make sense, the world, right? And the earth was without form, Genesis 1, 2, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Do you see how close we are right now? Here's God, and to one side he looks like darkness, and to the other side he looks like light. And you've got this roiling chaos army ready to wreak destruction on God's little seedling people. And now it's time for God to move on the face of the waters. And I just thought that was such a cool connection. God often intervenes. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. So this is not what we see with Charlton Heston and like, and there's this valley of water. It took all night, but there's this strong east wind that comes in. And I like the image of that better than Hollywood. Because God doesn't move with lightning bolts and thunder. This is a thing that would have happened throughout the whole evening. 
quietly and gently. And God's people wouldn't have been able to see the sea in the night. They would have woke up in the morning and see what God had done. We do that too. God doesn't work in thunderbolts. Like we don't speak to God and God's like, go this way, like he does with Charlton Heston. It doesn't work that way. And it made the sea dry land and the waters were divided, right? See the connection to Genesis? God's doing what God has always done. He's separating light from darkness. He's protecting his people. He's making order out of chaos. And the rage is festering over here. God's going to come in and show a different way. He's going to move on the waters. So the children of Israel, verse 22, went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right and to their left. So we're not clear where the sea was. It doesn't say that. I lean towards the Straits of Tehran because I can still see on Google Maps there's a land bridge there under the water. Um, But there's a lot of people that look at other places. There's even folks, and I think this is a danger, if you go online with this stuff, there's the Ron Wyatt stuff where he took a little journey down there and he found chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea and that sort of thing. Ron Wyatt's been shown to be a hoax by a lot of people and archaeologists don't respect his work. On the other hand, here's a guy that went down with a camera and took photos and said, look, I can see chariot wheel shapes in the coral reefs underneath the water, right here where the Bible says they would have crossed. But the Bible doesn't actually say where they crossed. And that Christians ate up the Ron Wyatt stuff back in the 90s. And Christians can be pretty gullible sometimes. And we don't always look for credibility. And you know how ready I am to pull this stuff up and say, look at this. But I couldn't trust some of this stuff. It wasn't really validated by other people and whatnot. Um, but there are people, just so you know, that claim that they can. There, there are still brass deposits, which aren't, you know, brass isn't possible in the natural world. You have to have humans bring tin and copper, help me with this, to make brass. But there's brass deposits by the Red Sea. That shouldn't happen, right? So anyways, there's a Los Angeles Time article that came out in 92 that shows that research supports the Bible's account of the parting of the Red Sea. So uh, this is from Thomas Ma, and uh, I'll quote what he says. He's a secular writer. This is the Los Angeles Times. And he says, Sophisticated computer calculations indicate that the Bible parting of the Red Sea, said to have allowed Moses and the Israelites to escape the bondage of Egypt, could have occurred precisely as the Bible describes it. Because of the peculiar geography of the northern end of the Red Sea, those two fingers, researchers report... Sunday, in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, a moderate wind blowing constantly for about 10 hours throughout the night could have caused the sea to recede about a mile and the water level to drop up to 10 feet, leaving dry land in an area where many biblical scholars believe the crossing occurred. Well, I'm glad that in 1992 we have secular people saying this is actually possible in the natural world. But again, just like with the plagues, the timing of it is still a miracle and the dry land part is still a miracle. Just because you had a wind blow doesn't mean you're not walking through mud, but it says they walked on dry land. So they still have to account for those things. And we have this thing with the cloud that looks like darkness to one person and fire and light to the other. That doesn't make sense either. So we're back to this point. Even though you might find some naturalistic explanation for the book of Exodus, the Bible is claiming a miracle. So even if the Red Sea thing could easily be explained, you still have to deal with this cloud that made it so Pharaoh wouldn't attack, right? And you still have to do that. And to one people, this looks is a stumbling block. Well, God, that's a miracle and miracles don't happen. And to other people, it's the glory of God. 
He made the world. He can move the water, right? It's just a puddle to him. So to a skeptic, anything can be shrugged off. To a believer, we see this as God. It's a miracle. And we praise him for it, right? To the unrational person, you just get upset because there goes the Israelites again, right? But to a person of God, you feel grateful. Whether it's dark or light, whether you're blind or you can see, you stand still, you look, you listen, you wait on God and look what God can do. And then you give God the glory. Wow, thank you, God. I'm going to give you credit for that 10 mile an hour wind that happened over the period of 10 hours, right when we needed that wind. Thank you, God. And I think it's cool because when you read Washington's journals, he totally gave glory to God for the fog that came into New York that saved his army. And he does it throughout his thing. He gives the glory to God in all of these situations. So Psalm 77 references this. Thy way is the sea, and thy path is in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou leads the people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. Christians for generations or Israelites for generations are going to give glory to God for this. They're not going to accredit some natural phenomena of wind blowing. The people that were there felt like it was God. First person perspective. And the Egyptians pursued, okay, and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And now it came to pass in the morning that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. This is their last chance right? And he took off their chariot wheels. I just see God, the mechanic, like, honestly, I'm a literal thinker. And I just like little God going down, taking off chariot wheels, but I'm sure it was different than that. Um, and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficult. So they keep driving them, even though their walls, their wheels are falling off. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. So even the Egyptians are saying, let's get out of here, Pharaoh right? Let's stop doing this. They still can't figure out after 10 plagues, they're in trouble right now. They still have time to turn back. God gives them so many warnings, so many chances. And this is the, we we also see in this mix, in the same way that we've seen a solution for what to do in crisis, like stand still, listen, remember the words of God. There's four things in here that should be troubling to non-believers. First, they're troubled which means to set into commotion. They're given total disorder. So instead of marching in nice, neat ranks, little mud spots and puddles are stuck. So this person's behind and this person's ahead. Suddenly the whole army's in chaos. And they're looking around and all they say is chaos. So that's the Hebrew word troubled there. means to set into a commotion, right? So they lose their military order. If you're in an endeavor, and I think this is in the church or in the workplace, you think you're doing the right thing building your treasure cities, and you look around and all you see is disorder, this is a mess, that might be God saying you're going down the wrong path. If it's that big of a mess, stand still, stop. Here's another one. They have difficulty going forward. The word difficulty there means heavy. It means there's a great weight on them that's like pulling them back. Have you ever tried to like swim and run when you're in the water? And everything's the same, but you just feel this weight on you. It's called water, right? It's like running in the mud, right? You're still running, the motion's the same, but you just feel like there's this weight, like it's not working. I felt that when we're doing things for the church and for the kingdom, Steph was doing the worship team thing, and it was something where she just wasn't happy. 
right? And I'm like, you know, honey, maybe that's not your calling. It's a good thing to be on the worship team, but maybe that's not where God wants you because it shouldn't be that tough to sing songs with people. It should just be fun, right? And so we took a little break from worship ministry and whatnot, but maybe if you're doing something and you just feel like there's this weight holding you back, that might be God saying, maybe not so much, Jackson. Maybe back off on one or two things because everything you're doing is great, but it's not God right? There's a small G and a capital G. Then there's that thing where it says flee. The word flee means we should vanish from here. It means to disappear, you know? So the Egyptians are like, we should just get out of here. And I think that's an interesting image too. If you're doing something and you just don't want to be there doing it, that might be the Lord putting something on your spirit. It might just be you being lazy too, but you got to pray about that and discern a little bit. Maybe if that path is so difficult, it's your wheels are coming off, things aren't working, stuff is breaking. I've seen a lot of good people that I really admire that just stop going that direction. We're not going to keep doing this. It seems like a really cool idea, but we're just not going to keep fighting against the goads, is another image the Bible has. Stop doing that, right? If you make a decision and you feel troubled, if your path has tons of problems, if there's a great difficulty or a weight or a burden to it, or if your peers start to bail on it, that's the fourth thing here, right? Let's get out of here. Like, why are we still here? And suddenly you can't recruit people to do this thing with you. Maybe that well you're digging is not the well God wants you to dig. Because if it's that hard, God's not in it. Because when God's in a ministry, it's awesome because everything just falls into place. And you just look around saying, wow, God is totally paving the path for this thing. Let's go. Let's do it. And you follow God. You don't have to push you don't have to try to get through the mud or something to that effect. And it's likely not God. So when God isn't in it, it's easy. In fact, in Matthew 11:28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Same idea, that heaviness. And I'll give you rest. I'm going to give you a break. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gently, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Serving God is anything, but it's not what the Egyptians are experiencing. Serving God is awesome. And other people look at us and say, man, you toil and you work, and what are you doing? All that extra stuff for you. You're like, it's not work to me. This is awesome. I love doing this. When I get to play drums at church, right, that's not a chore because God's put it in my heart, right? And you don't, it's not, when we went and did the coffee shop stuff, Jackson joined us for one of those. That's not work. That's awesomeness. And people are like, why are you out late at night doing music in a coffee shop? Because it's fun. And that when we take on the yoke of Jesus, I think when you're called into ministry, it's the fun stuff. It's the stuff you want to do, right? We don't expect this. I'm going to use another example because I'll point out Noelle because her mom's here and I can embarrass her. When you call up Noelle, and we've had other people do this, and you're just like, I just feel like bringing dessert tonight. I hope all of you know, none of you are obligated to do that. Like, you don't have to do that. But when you've been coming for a while consistently, you're like, I just want to give something back. And no, it's not a burden. It's just a way for us to love and care for each other. When, when Danny, when you hosted at your house, like, it's not, yes, it's work, but it's work you can do in joy and in pleasure because it's fun to do it. When we force ourselves to do something because we think it's the duty that we have, we've had a taste of serving God. But when it's a duty, you're not serving God anymore right? When you serve God, it should be easy, right? But you should serve God, right? The Lord fights for them. Verse 28. I'll do a huge chunk here. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, and while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There's a repetition here. This is an act of God. The Bible's claiming God did something here. Not a natural, fancy wind, not something that's explainable. It happens in the timing, and it happens when Moses moves his hand, just like we saw with the, with the Nile turning to blood. Remember in verses 10 through 12, the Israelites accused Moses. Why did you bring us out here? Now they get to see why they were brought out here. Now they learn faith. So that super excited new believer that runs into their first crisis and gets really disappointed and upset, if they turn to God, they get to build their faith. That enthusiasm actually grows. It goes the right direction. Because now you're like, oh, I I want to get into the mix now because then I get to see God do things, right? This is the mystery of why God tells us to pray. I've never understood why we were supposed to pray. We're supposed to ask God for things. We only ask God for things when we need things. So God sometimes puts us into positions where we need things, right? And we can realize that God actually answers our prayers, and it's an amazing part of the journey of faith. So the people of Israel, these new believers, just learned that lesson. When you're in trouble, pray. And God actually can answer your prayers, and that's amazing. So I have another quote from Mao here, that the, near, the Los Angeles Times guy. An abrupt change in the wind would have allowed the waters to come crashing back. Still, you got this thing with time. I mean, they're still trying to explain this thing away. Proverbs 34 says, Who holds the wind in his fists? Who wraps the oceans in his cloak? Who's created the whole wide world and what's his name and his son's name? By the way, this is in Proverbs, not in the New Testament. What is his name and his son's name? Tell me if you know. Proverbs 30 verse 4. There's lots of proof out there for this. And when you go online, you can see lots of these kinds of things. There's teams of people that have been out there that have seen this, that have done this. Verse 30, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's a vivid detail. This is not a children's story. It's not metaphorical. This is history being written, and that sentence for me locks this into adult history. This is not children's fantasy. This is not a fairy tale. Because you don't say things like, and they saw dead people on the seashore. That's the sort of thing that a first-person witness would say. And they washed up all over the seashore. Um, It's also something where you wouldn't expect to see a, a bunch of things at the bottom of the coral reef because the waters washed them up. So... A point about redemption and deliverance. When we have the Passover and the Red Sea, they kind of go together. So I'm kind of wrapping up. I'm saving that last verse just for this last point. Passover and the Red Sea go together. When you're delivered from Egypt, or when you're redeemed from Egypt, God still has a deliverance work to do. These are two different things, two different narratives. And we saw a big chapter in the middle explaining them, right? So God, through Passover will save his people. 
But that salvation's irrelevant if you're not delivered into a new life. This makes sense. I think this is one of the dangers in our church today is it's not looking at this literally, right? Or it's not looking at the importance of that. I can get saved, but if I'm not freed from my sin, if I'm not, I can be redeemed by God, but if I, if I don't walk with God long enough to see deliverance, then who cares about the salvation, right? So God could save his people from the, from he could pass over them and save them from death, but if they go back to Israel, it's irre, or if they go back to Egypt, it's irrelevant. The Red Sea has to go with Passover or there's no history being made. The same thing's true with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. They're two different narratives. The cross is meaningless unless Jesus rose from the dead. He's just a dead teacher, right? But if he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that has power that should change our lives because somebody rose from the dead after being crucified on a cross. And the Red Sea and the Passover go together a lot like the cross and the resurrection do. They're two miracles that need each other for relevance, right? You wouldn't get to the Red Sea if there wasn't a Passover. You wouldn't get to the salvation if there wasn't a death on the cross. So one without the other just doesn't work. They become irrelevance. The relevance of this is that Israel still exists. And as long as Israel exists, God's promises are potentially going to happen because Israel is mixed into the revelation of counts. They have to survive. So they still exist and that's the relevance. The relevance of the resurrection is that Jesus is alive. That's the claim of Christianity, right? And you can try to explain away the Red Sea as a natural phenomena. You can try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus as you know a sect of Jewish people that got a little nuts, but it doesn't change the fact that Israel's still there and there are millions of people that claim that Jesus acts in their life. When we pray, God answers questions. So the last verse is the moral of the story, the whole point of this adventure, right? This is why we needed to go through all these things. Verse 31, thus, therefore, in conclusion, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. I like how and his servant Moses got tagged on. You can tell Moses is writing. What's the whole point of being in a trap and getting out? What's the whole point of feeling crisis in your life and then seeing God save you from that crisis? The whole point is so that we can fear the Lord. He's powerful. He's mighty. He killed the firstborn of Egypt. He will bring judgment and judgment is promised. That's not a Sunday morning message in most churches, but death is coming to every one of us. It's like taxes. We will die, right? But we don't have to die. We can believe the Lord. Part of that, we can believe that the Lord is going to save us. That's the, the whole point of this sort of thing. And on our old lives, when we struggle and we go through tough times, the whole point of that is not to erase the tough times by going to more counseling. The whole point of it is to wait on the Lord, see him act in your life, and solve those things for you. Not because you've mentally built yourself up against them, but because God can save you. And it works. He also gives you the church so you can share your burdens with other people. But that's another chapter. For this part, Israel's could now as new believers, they got saved, but now they can see that God delivers too. Wow, not only did you get us out of Egypt, you can save us from Egypt. And we see that in our own life too. Not only did you save me from my sin, but you can deliver me from my sin and there can be freedom. We have way too many Christians 
a lot of us come from Bethel. We know all these people, right? There's way too many believers that have been saved from sin, but they still live in sin. And they're still bound by it. And they're tortured by it because they know they shouldn't be doing it. But you can't beat sin on your own. You have to stop and pray and say, God, deliver me from this. Get it out of my life. Get these little sins that keep giving me shame and burden in prison and help me be free from those things so I can live in the light of God. And that same light looks like darkness to other people. But the Israelites, they've learned their lesson. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Amen. End of Exodus part one. And this is with all little scrolls in a pile on the back of a wagon, this would have been the end of a major part of Exodus. So we'll see a new transition. We come back next week. It's kind of a new beginning, but this Exodus narrative is over. And now we get the life in the wilderness. What's that journey look like and how do we live life? um, And how do we do that? So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, there was so much in chapter uh, 14, Lord, that Um, I just pray we can absorb it all. There's so many lessons here. There's things we need to go back and reflect on throughout our whole life. Lord, I ask for your spirit to move in my heart and in the heart of everyone here. Help us, Lord, to see you. Thus, we can learn to fear you, Lord, as a powerful God. And we can learn to believe you. When you say you're going to do a thing, you do it. There's nothing that can stop you. What looks like a trap is your deliverance. What looks like the end, Lord, is where you begin a new story. Lord, our lives, we want to give them to you because on our own, we just lead ourselves into the wilderness and we get into traps. We can't figure this life out, Lord, without you. So we turn it all over to you. We give it to you. But Lord, we ask for you to show yourself to us, to reveal yourself to us, so that we know we're on a path where we follow you. Save us from ourselves, Lord. Lord, if we are in darkness, and if all we see is confusion and chaos, we might be on the wrong side of that cloud. Help us to turn, Lord, from our ways. If we're doing things, even in in the church, that feel like a burden, that they're heavy, that they're not moving forward, that it's every step is a struggle. Lord, may we be humble enough to repent and stop forcing something that you're not in. And may we serve you in all things and just watch your doors open up. Lord, we love you. And we don't always know our own path, but we want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.